0: let's pray together. <laughs> High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys over bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, a ruler of all. Father, we want to see beyond the brokenness of our own lives and desires, and we want to have a white-hot affection for you and for the unblushing promises of reward in the age to come. And we pray for the expulsive power of a new affection, drawing our hearts out to you. We need a miracle to happen. We need the daily miracle of conversion. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to change us and to shape us into your image. So open up our eyes, Lord, as we open up your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Time Magazine had a cover story this past week. Titled Porn and the Threat to Virility. Some of you may have seen that I wrote about it on Monday. Uh, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that I think this is one of the most, the saddest, most horrific articles that I've, that I've ever read. It's not sad and horrific in the sense that war or violent crime is sad and horrific, it's sad and horrific in the sense that it, it narrates a kind of slow motion suicide that our culture is committing against itself right now. The article, it, it's, it's about porn use and particularly about, about porn use among young men and at the heart of it is this contention that there's a backlash against internet pornography among men, young men who've been heavy users throughout their adolescence and young adulthood. And the author says this. She says a growing number of young men are convinced that their sexual responses have been sabotaged because their brains were virtually marinated in porn when they were adolescents. Their generation has consumed explicit content in quantities and varieties never before possible on devices designed to deliver content swiftly and privately, all at an age when their brains were more plastic, more prone to permanent change than in later life. These young men feel like unwitting getting pigs in a largely unmonitored decade-long experiment in sexual conditioning. So the rest of this article just recounts what these young men have been consuming for the last decade and what the results have been in their relationships as adults with real women. Many of them are simply unable to experience a response with a real live woman. And they're only able to respond to this perversion that they've been viewing online. In fact, they they prefer what they've been viewing online I was stunned by the article not because any of this was necessarily a surprise I was stunned though for a couple of, of reasons first I, I just don't think that we've begun to understand what this crisis means for us as a civilization this is not a story about you know some adolescent hijinks just going a little bit too too far this is the story of a generation of broken men who have had their minds rewired to love darkness. And to understand this, you have to to wrap your mind around the scope of this thing. Pornography has been a pervasive part of many young men's lives for the better part of of a decade in a way that it it wasn't before. 2007 broadband internet reaches over 50% of American households. 2013 smartphone ownership exceeds 50% of the population of our country. That means at some point around 2007, more Americans than not had access not to just still pictures, but to moving pictures of people engaged in various perversions. I'm not going to describe what those things are, but suffice it to say, open your Bible to Leviticus 18 and just read what it says there. And just know that the violation of everything in Leviticus 18 is normal and frequent in this content. So by 2013, more Americans than not had access to videos of this content at any time, at any place that they were because of their smartphones. The average age that a young man first encounters this material is around 11 to 13 years old. That means that countless young men have spent the better part of the last decade with access to this. And for many of them, everything that they've learned about sexuality and about women has come from this. And their preferences have been shaped by this. This is a civilizational calamity because porn use eviscerates manhood. It does not teach men virtue and honor. It doesn't fill them with industry and with an entrepreneurial spirit. It mires them in passivity and in morose self-indulgence. It teaches them to view women at a distance and as objects to be used and discarded. It renders them completely unprepared for marriage and for fatherhood. And guess what? You have no men prepared for marriage and fatherhood. You don't have a civilization anymore. You have ruins, is what you have. So, yes, I view this non hyperbolically as a civilizational crisis. But it's not just that, it's a church crisis. Let's not have any illusions about how pervasive this evil is and how it's invaded our own ranks. When Heath Lambert was, was still here, he used to say that of all the issues that he counsels, he talks to people about alcoholism and drug use, marital problems and, and work problems. He talks about, to people about a lot of different things. He said nothing comes close to the number of Christians that he talks to about this who are in the throes of this particular sin. So this ubiquitous evil in our culture has become a ubiquitous evil in our pews. And that means that we have this thing among us, threatening holiness and witness and marriages and fatherhood and child rearing and every other precious gift that God has given to us. This isn't a small problem. This is potentially an existential problem because porn use undermines holiness. And the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We're not going to be the exception to that. I don't believe in accidents. I, I, I couldn't have planned this if I had, if I had tried. Uh, my week has been dominated uh, by this time cover story because of a a really a big response that I I got to the article that I wrote about it but it just so happens that I was already set to preach this week on the last half of 2nd Timothy chapter 2 and in in this section Paul's continues his warning against false teaching but right in the middle of it is verse 22 and in verse 22 he issues this command to Timothy he says so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. My mind has been on this text for the last week for more reasons than one. It's not just that this is where we are in our study of 2 of Timothy. It's not just because that there's an article in Time Magazine about it. It's because I think we need this word. Kenwood Baptist Church needs This word. All of us need this word. So we're going to postpone looking at the entirety of the second half of chapter 2 until the next time I'm up in a couple of weeks. Today we're going to focus solely on verse 22. And here's the point you cannot pursue God and pursue pornography. You can pursue one. Or you can pursue the other, but you cannot pursue both. And what this text is telling us in verse 22 is how to pursue God, how to pursue the narrow way that leads to life. And I've got three points. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) They go right with the verse. Number one, flee youthful lusts, pursue the fruit of the Spirit. And three, embrace Christian fellowship. So how do you pursue the narrow way? How do you pursue God? Not this other thing. You do it by fleeing youthful lusts, by pursuing the fruit of the Spirit, and by embracing Christian fellowship. First thing is fleeing youthful lusts. Look at verse 22. It's right there at the beginning. So flee youthful passions. Now, before we can figure out exactly what Paul is commanding Timothy and, and us, I believe, what he's commanding us to do in this text. We have to figure out what he's telling us to, f- to flee from. And, and we're going to linger for um, a few minutes on, on what Paul is telling us here. Some translations render this differently and indicate that the passions refer specifically to sexual passion. So if you read the New American Standard, it says flee youthful lusts, or the King James, flee youthful lusts. New Living Translation. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. So it, 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 it tilts in, in, in the, into the direction of, of sexual passions in particular. But there are a lot of commentators and translators who, who, who see this differently, and they note that Paul is using a typical Greek word for desire. And in this in this context, those desires aren't sexual in nature. In this context, the issue is false teachers and their teaching, which if you've been following along in this Our study of 2 Timothy, that's exactly what Paul's talking about. And so fleeing youthful desires, therefore, has to do with those desires that motivate false teachers in their error. Other people say that youthful desires refer to youthful sins of judgment and temperament. And so they don't think that sexual lust seems to be the focus, and some of the translations bear that out. And so some of those folks think that really there's nothing specifically sexual about this. And so on that rendering, we might look at this verse and think, well, this doesn't really have anything to do with the, the topic at hand. But I disagree with that point of view, and I, and I want to you, explain to you why. Um, it, it, it's, it's so fascinating to me. I was reading all these commentators, and I don't know why, but every commentator that I've read misses something absolutely critical that reveals what Paul means by this term. That's in the ESV translated as passions, and in other translations as, as lusts. Paul has used this term for lusts, or passions, in other writings, in other of his books. And, it's, and I'm going to do something odd here. I'm going to tell you a Greek word, okay? So I don't, I don't do this, but I want you to learn this word, epithumia. It's a Greek term that Paul used, epithumia, and it simply means Desire. That's the word that he uses in 2 Timothy 2.22. And it's a reference to our experience of longing or cravings for something. It's a longing or a craving in our heart that motivates us to make the decisions that we make. That's what epithumia is. That's what our desires are. And Paul gives us, in Romans chapter 7, a chapter-long meditation on what he means by this term. Romans 7, I believe, should inform the way we think about Paul. what Paul thinks about this term. Because Paul says, I would not have known about epithumia. I would not have known about desire, except that the law was saying, you shall not desire. You shall not epithumeo. Paul's saying there's a kind of desiring that he would not even have known about unless he had had the Bible parse his heart for him and explain it to him. Paul knew about it because he was reading the law. He experienced desire in his life, but it was the Bible that defined for him what that desire was and how it transgressed God's commands. And he quotes specifically in Romans 7, he quotes specifically the 10th Commandment. We, you and I know the tenth commandment as thou shalt not covet. Paul knew that command in Greek, which is literally you shall not desire. Epithumeo, same word that we see in 2 Timothy 2 Same word group. This means that Paul's understanding of desire is defined by the tenth commandment. That means if we want to understand Flee youthful desires. We must understand the 10th commandment. So I want you to turn in your Bibles quickly to Exodus 20. Everybody turn over to Exodus 20. Go to Genesis, first book, take a right, one book. You're in Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We know this command is thou shalt not covet. But if you read the Bible, it's not a command without a direct object. It's telling you not to covet certain things. And it's using the term in the Greek translation, which is what Paul read, it's using the same term that Paul is using in 2 Timothy 2.22 and Romans 7. When Paul singled out the 10th commandment, He wasn't just picking out a random command as if any old command would do when he discusses the 10th commandment in Romans 7. He's picking the 10th commandment out because I think it is, along with the 1st commandment, the, the very hardest of all the commandments. Why? Because the other commandments address our deeds. The 10th commandment addresses our desires. The other commandments say things like, You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. We know the behavior that's being forbidden in those commands. But the 10th commandment says that we're not supposed to even desire those things. Why? Because your desires aren't neutral. If you desire something sinful, anything sinful, sexual or otherwise. If you desire something sinful, your desire itself is sinful. That means even if you've never actually committed adultery with another woman, even if you've never stolen anything, even if you've never killed anyone, if you have desires commensurate with those deeds, you've already sinned. That's what the 10th commandment says. Jesus wasn't introducing an innovation when he said, "You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, Any man that looks upon a woman in order to desire her sexually has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Remember when Jesus said that in Matthew 5? He wasn't innovating there. Jesus, the chief shepherd, was teaching you what the law meant when God gave it to Moses. That's not new in Matthew 5. That's old. Jesus is reading the 10th commandment. It's not just the doing of the deed that's the problem. It's the desiring of the deed. That's the beginning of the problem. And that's why Paul says what he says in Romans 7. I wouldn't even have known about how deep my problem was with sin if I hadn't read the 10th commandment. That command teaches me that my deepest problem is a problem of desire. And my desires are intractably entangled with and defined by sin. Go read Romans 7. That's why nobody has to teach you or has to teach me to have sinful desires. Sinful desires spring up very naturally from our nature. That's who all of us are apart from grace. And so the problem is not the law you shall not covet. That's not the problem. The problem is us. And that's why Paul says in Romans 7, 8, sin is. Taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me desiring of every kind. And by desiring of every kind, he means all those things in the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet his stuff. This is why it's absurd for a Christian to say that if something feels natural to a person, then it can't be wrong. The sinfulness of desire is not determined by whether or not it comes naturally to us. It comes naturally to us. It doesn't matter whether you choose to feel a certain desire or not. That doesn't determine its sinfulness. The issue is the object of your desire. Read the 10th commandment. If you desire something, God has forbidden. Your desire is sinful, whether you remember choosing to feel it or not. That's what the 10th commandment teaches us. Now look back at 2 Timothy 2.22. Paul says, flee youthful epithumia, the very thing forbidden in the 10th commandment and that he expounds at length in Romans 7. Flee youthful desires, same term. That means that the desires that we must flee from are any desire for something that God has forbidden us. That's what it is. It's certainly not limited to illicit sexual desire, but it certainly does include illicit sexual desire. But notice that Paul says, flee youthful lusts. Why does he use this term youthful? Is he trying to say that the desires forbidden here are only experienced by young people? I don't think that that's what he, he means. That doesn't make any sense at all. I think they're youthful desires in the sense that they're undisciplined desires. In other words, maturity and experience usually have a moderating effect on the way that we experience our desires. But the younger you are and the less experienced you are, the less self-control you bring to your desires. In, in, in my house... Uh, on Friday nights, we we do a thing called Friday Night Fun Night, and and, and every week at, at our house, we um, that Friday Night Fun Night consists of pizza and a movie, or pizza and, and games. That's what we do every night, and if it's usually Little Caesars, <laughs> and uh, and and you know, games or a movie. If we're really high rolling, it's Papa John's. Okay. <laughs> Two nights ago, we were high rolling, okay? So we, we Papa John. We did Papa John's. And so I took the two smaller kids. We went to pick up the pizza on the way there. I also picked up powdered donuts, <laughs> double stuff Oreos. We get home. We eat our pizza. The kids have this powdered donuts Oreo radar, okay? They're su- supposedly watching a movie, but I start behind them in the kitchen opening these things, and they hear it pretty soon. Every single one of the kids is standing around me, and they're not just looking at me opening packages. They're like, "I want two powdered donuts, two cookies. Can I have two powdered donuts, two cookies?" There's this cacophony of voices, okay, and they both, they all have to stake their claim on the powdered donuts and the cookies, and it just gets louder and louder. And pretty soon, it just says, "Ah, powdered donuts, cookies, powdered donuts." Everybody's yelling, and I have to say, "Shh, okay, calm down." This happens a lot. It quickly turns boisterous, demanding. It's a youthful desire because they're not mature enough yet to realize that maybe their desire for cookies and donuts isn't the most important desire in the world. It's youthful desire because it's undisciplined. There's no self-control to think, you know, maybe before I start demanding what I want... Maybe I should make sure that my siblings get theirs first or or maybe I should make sure there's enough for everyone before I demand my share or or maybe yelling out my desires isn't the wisest way to pursue what I want. So when you think youthful desires, think desires that anyone of any age could feel but that may be more or less intense because of maturity and self-control. Flee youthful desires. Desires. Flee youthful lusts, then, means fleeing from uncontrolled sinful desires, including sinful sexual desires. That's what it means. Viewing pornography is the opposite of viewing, of, of fleeing youthful lusts. It's the opposite. It's the embracing of youthful lusts. It's the retreading of well-worn paths of evil desire for things that God has forbidden. And for some people, maybe perhaps even in this room, they would be paths that you began to walk when you were very young. And every walk down that path clears the path a little more and makes it a little easier to go back and forth. And every walk down that path is an open rebellion against what God says. You shall not covet. It is a surrender to youthful patterns of undiscipline and godlessness. It is a surrender to indwelling sin. The very sin that God calls you to repent of and to mortify. Someone might say, but I'm not actually committing adultery or fornicating with another person. Just looking at things. That that, that excuse won't work, will it? Paul says flee the desires. The looking and the searching is precisely what is forbidden. And it's precisely what God says you must flee from. And notice that it says flee, not resist. James 4, 7, the Bible teaches us, you know, resist the devil. You should resist the devil and he will flee from you. But we're not called to resist this. We're called to flee from this. Why? Because you can't resist desire like this. You can only flee from it. So that means a couple of things. It means, number one, you have to flee from situations that provoke you to this sin. Romans 13, 14, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its desires. Same word from the 10th commandment. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its desires. That means you've got to strategize and you've got to think ahead and you don't do the things or get with the people or go to the places that you know are going to arouse evil desires that are already in your heart. The desires are already there. The question is whether you are going to provoke them through undisciplined conduct or whether you will have self-control not to make provision for the flesh. This takes intentionality and discipline. So you have to flee from those situations, which means making no provision for the flesh. But the second thing is, you've got to be willing to take radical measures to flee from this particular sin. Jesus says when it comes to sexual sin, you have to be willing to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand in order to keep your desires in check. Why? Because it would be better for your eye or your hand to be destroyed than for your whole body to be thrown into hell, he says. Does it literally mean that you have to cut off body parts? I don't think he's literally saying cut off your body parts. I think he's saying in a hyperbolic way that you have to take radical measures to to not make provision for your flesh. Things that are extraordinary and unusual. might mean not owning a television might mean not owning cable or having internet access might mean not owning a smartphone but going back to a flip phone somebody might say well i know i'm addicted to this but but i have a, I have a, i have to have a smartphone to which jesus might say well you might have to go to hell cut off your hand don't be a fool Use, lose your smartphone and save your soul. I know about how serious a guy is about repenting from this sin by how much he's willing to let go of to fight it. Don't tell me you're serious about this if you've got limits. Flee youthful lusts. But notice what he says next in verse 22. He says, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Paul often has this put on, put off balance in his ethical exhortations. In other words, what he's he's saying is that being a Christian is not just about being against something, it's also about being for something. In this case, we're called to shun evil desire and instead to pursue its opposite. Righteousness, faith, love and peace. You'll notice three out of those four virtues the, uh, appear in the, the list of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5:22. Remember that? But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things. There, are, there is no law. Well, there it is: love, peace, faith. All three are in that list. They're right here. Pursue these things. Why? This is what the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is. So when Paul commands Timothy and us to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, he's commanding us to pursue what the Spirit is already doing within us if we're Christians. He's not calling us to do this alone. This is what the Spirit of God is already working inside all of his children. Philippians 2 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. you got to work at it. Why? For it is at God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That means that your active pursuit of holiness is not at odds with grace. Your active striving against sin is not legalism. It's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is having his way with you. The absence of striving is evidence of the absence of the Spirit. Do you see this? So you can't simply stop doing bad things. You have to start pursuing the good things. And the reason is because You're not pursuing abstractions. You're pursuing God. You're pursuing a person. And pursuing righteousness, faith, and love, and peace is evidence that you're pursuing Him. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Righteousness is talking about upright behavior. It's the kind of behavior that conforms to God's law. Faith, in this context, it's not talking about faithfulness, I don't think. I think it's actually talking about faith in the sense of of belief. The fundamental Christian virtue that you have to place your faith in Christ alone for salvation and that you're believing and waiting for Him to complete what He's begun in you. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit. It's the high esteem and affection and regard that we're supposed to have both for God and for our neighbor and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus says it's the first and greatest commandment. He also says that all people would know His disciples by their love. Peace in this context refers to harmony in personal relationships. One fruit of the Spirit is that it brings order where there used to be disorder. And that means as far as it depends on you, there will be peace with the other people in your life. You are no longer at war with people. You love people. And so peace enters into your relationships with people. And here Paul is saying you should be pursuing this kind of of peace. If you are putting off evil desires and walking away from pornography, these are the things that you're supposed to be replacing it with. And you'll have your hands full with this if you give your whole heart to this. God will help you and sustain you as you're fleeing from the other if you are pursuing this. You know, you know I've noticed it's a lot harder for me to exercise when all I'm doing is exercising. My regular thing I usually do is I get on the treadmill and and I have a hard time going for very long if my mind is preoccupied with the pain that I'm feeling in my muscles. But if I put on the headphones and start listening to music or watch a show or, or read my Bible, I find that the pain doesn't go away but I can endure it because my mind is not focused on the pain but on the other thing. If you're trying to flee pornography and your efforts consist merely in stopping one thing without active pursuit of the other thing, righteousness, faith, love, peace, you're going to falter. You're going to focus on what you think you're missing and you're, you're going to miss it. Instead, you need to be engaging your heart and your mind in something that is much better and weightier than what you have given up. that means that the fight for holiness in this area is a fight for joy it's a fight for what thomas chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection in that famous sermon it's leaving off an inferior thing to pursue a better more satisfying thing in practical terms that means that you don't just sit on your couch staring at your computer wondering how long you can hold out It means you get up and you get to work. You pursue righteousness. You do the things that make for good character. You work hard. If you don't have a job, you get a job. If you're single, you take an extra shift if you need to. Save your money. Start a business. Add value to the economy. Bless others with what you have. The proverb says, It is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself. If his conduct is pure and right, You have righteous deeds and you pursue righteous deeds and don't leave yourself one minute to waste on pursuit of youthful lusts. You pursue righteousness and you pursue love, which means you actively seek out ways to bless people in your life. Mow a widow's lawn. Help us keep this building in order. We got plenty for you to do around here. Fix something that would bless everyone if it were fixed. Give someone a ride to the grocery store. You pursue faith. Do the things that make your heart grow large with expectation and thankfulness for your Savior. You read your Bible. You pray heaven down and into your life and into your relationships and into your work. You listen to the word preached here. You sit in awe of the gospel at this communion table every week. You pursue the means of grace that God has given you to sustain the faith and confidence that you have in your Lord and Savior Jesus. If you give yourself to these things, you won't have time for youthful lusts. You will learn self control and love and goodness and a thousand other beautiful things that God wants to sow into your life. But you get moving. So you flee youthful lusts, you pursue the fruit of the Spirit. And then the last thing here is you embrace Christian fellowship. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That last phrase is not a throwaway line. There is something precious in that last line and absolutely crucial the last phrase is telling you how to pursue righteousness faith and love and peace it's telling you that you can't do it alone it's telling you that God doesn't intend for you to do it alone it's telling you you're supposed to pursue these things along with a group of other people who are also pursuing those things with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart Romans 10, 13 says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so those who call upon the Lord are the, people, are the saved. It's talking about Christians here. It's, it's nothing less than the church. It's the gathering of Christ's body, people who call on the Lord for salvation. But notice that it says that the people that you're to pursue this with, they call on the Lord, but they do it from a pure heart. These are not people calling on the Lord from an impure and hypocritical heart. They are not people who are saying they are doing one thing while they're actually doing another thing. They are actually authentically striving to walk with Christ in integrity and in holiness. And so Paul is saying you've got to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with these people, with us. You're not supposed to try to do this by yourself. You have to realize that the church is God's plan for your sanctification. That sounds really strange for a lot of individualistic evangelicals, okay? But this says pursue these things with these people. The means of grace are here. Encouragement and accountability are here at the church, You don't have these things by yourself. Sanctification is not a private effort, it's a corporate effort that we all undertake together. We need each other. There's a reason that we have so many one another's in the Bible, like Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's what this fellowship is supposed to look like. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What that means is you've got to be here. Church can't be a theoretical thing. It's got to be a thing that you go to and get with the people. If you're really serious about purity, you need to go to church. You don't just sit and listen and leave. You invest time and energy to become a part of the life of this fellowship. Stay for potluck. Join a small group. Make friends here. Make best friends here. Share your life with brothers and sisters. Ask for help. Give your help. When you do that, you will begin to forge the kinds of relationships that matter and they get you out of your private little sin ghettos. So you've got to free, flee youthful lusts, pursue the fruit of the Spirit, and embrace Christian fellowship. I just want to finish by giving you a handful of practical things to think about and, and, and to do if this is, if this is something that you're, you're wrestling with. The first thing is this. You need to confess your sin. James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You need to confess your sins to God. And you need to confess your sins to trusted brother. Your secret sin is an open scandal in heaven. And what you're hiding here isn't really hidden. And it may not really stay hidden very long here. Yes, confess to God, but you need to find a trusted brother or sister, if you happen to be female struggling with this. Find someone to confess to. That leads to the second thing, which is pursue accountability. Our text says, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. If you've got areas in your life that you're intentionally keeping in the dark, you've got to blow the lid off of that. You've not only got to confess your sin, but you've got to attach yourself to someone who can help you to be accountable. And this person can't be someone who's mired in the same problem that you are. This person has to be someone who's proven faithfulness in this area and who can actually pull you forward in constructive ways. And I would add this you need to pursue that kind of accountability with a person in your church, in this church. Your accountability ought to be under the purview of the discipline and order of the church, it's a part of God's plan for your sanctification. Otherwise, your accountability has no ultimate teeth to it. Third thing, you need to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye. You need to be willing to take extraordinary measures to beat this. There's nothing you lay down that the Lord won't replace with more joy. You need to lay down, if you need to lay down your smartphone, then do it. If you need to lay down cable, then do it. Don't hold anything back and get serious about this. And again, your willingness to take these extraordinary measures will reveal just how serious you are about following Christ. Show me a guy who's ready to lay down everything for Christ. I'll show you a guy who's a disciple. You show me a guy who's unwilling to lay prized possessions aside, privileges aside, I'll show you a guy who's ready to walk the broad road that leads to destruction. You say, well, that's radical. Well, Jesus said it. That's what he said to us. We don't do like an end run around what Jesus told us, right? It's a broad road that leads to destruction, a narrow way that leads to life. Don't think if you get on the broad road that it goes to life. It doesn't go there. And that leads to the fourth point. Realize what's at stake here. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. If you're pursuing youthful lusts online, you are on the broad road. You're not on the path that leads to eternal life. That's not where it leads to. And so you have to ask yourself a serious question. Where do I think this is taking me? It's not taking you to Jesus. It's taking you away from Jesus. So you need to think about what's at stake because everything is at stake. Jesus said things like, no man can serve two masters. You can love the one, hate the other, despise the one, be devoted to the other. You can serve God or you can serve your idol, but you can't have both. So you got to think about what the stakes are. It's everything. It's a path that leads to life versus a path that leads to destruction. Think about what the stakes are for Marriage. You ruin your marriage. It's immorality. It's pornea. If a girl comes to me and says, I'm thinking about marrying a guy, but he's got this as a part of his life, I'm gonna tell her no, don't. It disqualifies you from ministry. Don't think that it doesn't. It disqualifies you. There's much at stake. The fifth thing you need to define the struggle in terms of victory and not in terms of defeat. I hear a lot of guys talk about this as a struggle. And what they mean by struggle is they try hard not to do this and then they fall. And they try hard again and they fall. And they try hard again and they fall. fall. And so for them, struggle means an entrenched pattern of defeat. That's just not biblical struggle. Biblical struggle is patterns of progress. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces, this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Here's one text in which the struggle is defined in terms of standing firm, not in terms of entrenched patterns of defeat. Don't call it Christian struggling if it's just patterns of defeat. Biblical struggle is not embracing those patterns, but increasing patterns of faithfulness. I'm not saying anybody's going to be perfect, okay? I'm not saying that. But if your struggle is just patterns of defeat with no progress, you're not doing it right. And you need to take even more extraordinary measures to see progress and holiness. Sixth and last thing I would say is this, and this is the one I want us to realign ourselves on don't accept this as normal I, I, I'm afraid that we have the church has accommodated itself to this new reality so that we think this is just going to be normal going forward and this is just going to be a part of us going forward and we just need to learn to live with it going forward I, don't, don't do that I think that you can stop this and never do it again If you don't believe that, we're not believing the same gospel. Okay? Don't accept this as normal. Accept this as a perversion from which God wishes to cleanse you and to change you and to give you victory. We believe in the gospel here. That means that We don't get to go to heaven or be made right with God because of our good deeds. We don't have them, okay? Our good deeds are tainted by this deep waywardness that we have in our soul. But God sent his son Jesus to die for us, to take the punishment that we deserve because of sin. He sent his son to take that upon himself. And he gives us forgiveness of sins. Because of Jesus' death. And then Jesus raised up three days later, and he ascended and sits at the right hand of his Father right now. And because of his resurrection, he promises us a resurrection and eternal life with him. This gospel is for anybody who will believe. Anybody who will believe, he offers it freely, he offers you mercy, he takes away shame, the shame of this. He takes away the guilt of this, and he offers you newness of life so that you can walk away from this. And that's what I'm praying for, for all of us. Let's pray. Father, make us holy, conform us to the image of our King Jesus. I pray that you would make this message a marker in the sand, and that men. And women would say, no more, today. And today would be the day that it ends. So I ask you, Lord, for this mercy. Please do this in us and among us. You know the things that need to happen. <laughs> different people here are going to have to make some different decisions and different measures and different steps I just pray that you'd help them to do that and make this the decisive moment help us all to see the stakes and to war with all our might against youthful lusts and to pursue with all our might righteousness, love, faith and peace to pursue you Be our vision, O Lord of our heart. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.